Father God, we come to this place in our worship where we, we actually do ask you to be our teacher. We ask your spirit to give us understanding of your word. We know, God, this is a, a big, big part of what we do to grow and what we do to learn more about you and, and what we do as disciples, men and women uh, wanting to know more about Jesus, to become more like him. And so, Father, would you convict, encourage, challenge us this morning as we look at your word, this we ask in the name and for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Uh, well, last week we dove into the Ten Commandments and uh, Aaron began to teach us on the First Commandment. And the meaning of the First Commandment is, is pretty straightforward. It's very significant. As he said, it's foundational. Really, all the other commandments do stand on the shoulders of this first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And last week, Aaron again helped us see the reason, uh, at least part of the reason that God gave us that command. There is only one being worthy of our worship, and that is Almighty God. Only one deserves your worship and mine. There is only one being with the character, the love, the power, the glory, the majesty, and the list can just go on and on uh, to deserve, actually deserve our worship. And as it turns out too, there is only one being who can or will come through for you and me in our time of need. Uh, there's only one God who can do that. There's only one God whose propensity is to do that. There is only one being for whom you were made. Uh, there's only one being whose image you reflect, and that, of course, is Yahweh. That's Jehovah God. That is God Almighty. Uh, if you fix your affections on something or someone else, if you order your life around some other value, well, that may work for you for a while. But eventually, guaranteed, that God, small g, will let you down. That God will not save you. That God will destroy you. You will discover that you were following something or someone that was really no God at all. And for these reasons and others, God says to us, honor me and me alone as your God. And if you do, I will, I will do life with you. I will bless you. I will adopt you into my family. One of the greatest blessings of knowing God. The, the first commandment is, is fairly straightforward and fairly clear and fundamentally important. And we discussed that last week. The second commandment's a little different. It's a little messier. There was actually some controversy around it, so much so that in early church history, there were some arguments that developed over whether or not the second commandment is actually even a separate commandment from the first at all. Um, as many of you may know, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, or for that matter, if you're from a Lutheran background, this would also be the case. Uh, there's a little bit of a difference of opinion about how to number uh, the commandments. Catholics, Lutherans put the commandments number one and two together and say it's, it's just one commandment. And in order to get ten, they divide up commandment number ten into two commandments. They say you shall not covet your neighbor's property is commandment number nine, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife is commandment number ten. That's how they are at that number. But Reformed Protestant believers number them the, the way God numbers them. And, you know, that is uh, to agree with the, the Talmud, the Septuagint, and the reason for the different way of numbering. Protestants claim 
uh, have claimed, and fairly or unfairly, uh, this is the claim, that the Catholics uh, wanted, frankly, to ignore the language of the second commandment. And by lumping it in with the first, they could do that more readily, more easily. They could continue their practice of using religious images and statues, statues, excuse me, and relics and things like that in worship. And there is, of course, some language in the second commandment about images and and relics and uh, objects of that nature uh, and whether or not they ought to be incorporated in our worship. Let's read those words together. This is the word of God, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. By the way, that's pretty comprehensive. (laughs) Up there, here, and down there, I mean, it's pretty comprehensive. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sin, uh, children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the question is, as we read this commandment, what is the concern here? What is being prohibited? And and perhaps also we should ask the question, why? Um, And before we dive into that specifically, let's deal with the kind of the last little part of this command, which uh, quite quite frankly for many is pretty confusing and even troubling uh, for some. There where God says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. We get jealousy. I mean, if, if you're a spouse and um, your loved one is unfaithful to you, I guarantee you, you will be jealous and rightly so. Because when you make promises to each other and you're in love with someone, deeply love them and want to serve them and so, and they break their promises to you, jealousy is the right response, not a wrong response. And so when it talks about God being jealous, it's not petty jealousy. It's out of that love and covenantal relationship that God is being described. He's a jealous God. It says, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And we read that and we think, wow, man, that, that's quite a threat right there. Um, does that mean what it says? And You know, the fact of the matter is that same threat is repeated elsewhere in Scripture several times. Exodus 34, Numbers 14, Jeremiah 32, same threat about punishing, you know, generations that follow. And uh, you have to ask, what in the world is this talking about? What exactly does this mean? And to start and kind of answer that, let me first answer this. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It's not a reference to something like generational curses. Not at all. Nor is it a reference to hexes or to demonic oppression, which some in the past have interpreted it to be. Nor does it mean that a righteous child, by that I mean someone who loves God and is desiring to follow God. And, and so it will be punished for their sins, or punished for the sins of their father that has preceded them. Uh, this is kind of a common misunderstanding around these words in this commandment. And so, so common, in fact, that the prophet Ezekiel had to correct this misunderstanding. Ezekiel in chapter 18 says this, this is verse 20. He says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. Now that's pretty clear. It clears up any misunderstanding about this that we could have um, 
Yahweh is, in other words, he's not saying, hey, tough break, kid. Your dad was so wicked that I am going to make you pay for his sins your whole life long. That's exactly what the second commandment is not saying. But what then does it mean, punishing the children for the sins of the father? Where, where does this idea come from? What does this mean? And actually, it, it's not that complicated. It's fairly simple. Uh, at, at the end of verse 5 is sort of the key to this. When God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, here are the key words of those who hate me. That's the key right there. And the point is, that these children share in their father's punishment precisely because they share in their father's sins. You see, they too persist in hating or ignoring or disobeying or disregarding or not following God, just like their, their father did. And so they too will experience the, the punishment and the consequences and the brokenness and the destruction of all their own sinful Behavior. That's what's being said there in the second commandment. And let's not fail to notice the promise that comes after the threat. And that is that showing love, this is describing God, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And that's not magical math. That's not spiritual math. That's not a secret formula or something. It's actually more of a saying. It's an expression what it means is a lot of your descendants, that's what it's saying, a lot of your descendants will experience the remarkable love and blessing and care of God. If, if you just keep God's commandments, if you just love God, follow God, repent of your sin, grow as a disciple, that's kind of the idea here. And there's a great discussion of all this in a little book. It's actually out on a book table. And uh, if you're visiting, you can have that book for free. It's, it's by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. It's on the Ten Commandments. Everything I just said comes right out of that book. And uh, he does a better job of filling in some of the, the, the details than I just did. But I highly recommend that book to you. A real clear, uh, easy, short uh, conversation and discussion and look at the Ten Commandments. And it, as I said, if you're not uh, a member here, you can have that book. If you are a member here, uh, don't even think about it. <laughs> you can pay for it, okay? Anyway, but back to our earlier question. What is the Second Commandment then saying? What is it getting at? You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. It's pretty clear, really. Under no circumstances should a human being ever be crafting something, making something with their hands and then bow down before it, worshiping whatever it's supposed to represent, even if it's supposed to represent Yahweh, Almighty God himself. Now, some of you are thinking right now, okay, <laughs> good, not a problem. I've got this one. You know, at least one of the commandments I seem to have in tow. Uh, I've never, to my knowledge or recollection, made an image of God out of wood, precious metal, or anything. Even if I could make an image of some sort, I don't think I would bow down to it. So I got this one. You know, kind of an approach. Well, maybe. Maybe not. Truth is, the second commandment, it's kind of surprising. It sort of sneaks up on us. 
There are some subtleties to the second commandment, especially when we start to try to mine in on the question of why. Why this second commandment? What is God getting at? So, so bear with me as we try to do that a little bit. The what of this commandment is clear. God doesn't want images employed in worship, worship of him. Doesn't want us crafting images which then become idols. Now the why of the second commandment, slightly less obvious Still very, very important. You realize, of course, that God knows human beings. He knows you and me inside and out. None of our thoughts, none of our actions ever surprise him. Uh, He ought to know us well. After all, he designed us. He created us. He breathed life into us. He knows us inside out. So he knows that a major challenge and frustration sometimes to his people is that uh, even going back into Old Testament times, it was that they had to worship a God who was invisible. A God who was spirit. They couldn't see him. They couldn't touch him. They couldn't identify, you know, a location for him. Whereas other nations in Old Testament times worshiped gods who were represented usually by huge statues made of wood or made of stone overlaid with gold and precious metals and often gems. And and that stuff was quite honestly very visually impressive. And what is more, those gods or idols were often housed in magnificent temples, which were also very visually impressive, even inspiring. And people by the hundreds or the thousands could come and see these statues and see these idols and offer sacrifices and gifts to the gods. Uh, They could even purchase replicas, small replicas of the gods, uh, little statuettes that they could take home and create a shrine, kind of a place where they could have daily worship and get daily protection, maybe some good luck also from just having a representation of this God in their home. This was common practice. We even read about a New Testament practice like that in Acts chapter 19 uh, in this city of Ephesus. Paul, you know, gets uh, in trouble simply because uh, the market for these idols, these little shrines was was suffering because more and more people in the city were coming to know Jesus. And, uh, you know, things, business was lucrative if you were an artisan in that, uh, in that marketplace. And, uh, you would not be popular if um, you were preaching the name of Jesus Christ and people were turning away from their idols. Now, you know, contrast that kind of a situation, gods and temples, little statuettes you could take home. Contrast that with the God of the Bible. Not only does he command that his people worship him and him alone, that's the first commandment, but he goes a step further and he says, don't ever Don't ever cave into the temptation to craft an object that will in any way serve to represent me. Don't make anything of wood or anything of stone or anything of precious metals or anything of gems that serves as a focal point for your worship of me. I know you'd like a big visual object. You want to be like all of the other nations. I know you would like uh, to have a place to go where you could visually see me, but none of those images understand, none of those representations can begin to do me justice. In fact, all of them, all of them diminish me in one way or another. And so God says, no images, no images. And that right there is, I think, a big part of the why of this second commandment. In God's infinite wisdom, he knew that no image constructed by human hands could ever, ever accurately represent the totality of who he is. He knows that. 
I mean, nothing we can paint, nothing we can shape, nothing we can chisel could ever be a fair representation of the one true almighty living God. It would be like asking someone to write a thorough analysis of the history of the world, but do it in one sentence. It can't be done. That is not possible. A sentence is inadequate for that task. And God is just saying, anyone who tries to capture who I am in oils, in stone, in film for that matter, is setting out to do the impossible. It cannot be done. Not only can it not be done, but it is also disrespectful and dishonoring to who God actually is. It's reductionary. It makes God less than he really is. And that too, I'm sure that's, that's part and parcel of the why of this second commandment. Uh, this concern not to reduce God or not to get God wrong. Because understand, human beings ever since the, you know, we read about it in the early chapters of Genesis, what we call the fall, when Adam and Eve chose to go their own way, do their own thing, disobey God. They thought they knew better than God. They thought they would be God. And we call that the fall, the fall into sin. When that happened, ever since that time, human beings have deliberately tried to shrink God. We want to make him less than he really is because that makes him more manageable to us. You see, our images of God, whether it's a golden calf or whether it's God just as a loving father or God just as a caring shepherd or God just as a sacrificial lamb or God just as a dove descending from the heavens, whatever the image, that image by itself, while it is perhaps partially true, it's never totally true, entirely true. It never can tell the whole truth. It reduces God to one thing or one idea or just a little subset of ideas, right? The golden calf said some true things about God. He's powerful. I mean, he's fearless. He's strong. He's potent, right? But what about his wisdom? What about his holiness? What about his justness or his love or his Mercy, you see, an image can capture only a small aspect of who our God really is. And consequently, eventually with an image, you won't be worshiping the, the true God anymore. You'll be worshiping something less, something that you have created. And that will always be just a shadow, a, a very imperfect representation of our God. And frankly, uh, th this is always a big, big, big problem for us, reducing God into something he is not. What we need, friends, we need a big, robust, biblical understanding of who our God is, an understanding of what he has done, an understanding of how we fail to meet standards that he set, and an understanding of what he's done about that huge problem that we have. That is why we have the Bible, and that is why God is primarily, yes, he's revealed himself in the beautiful creation, and boy, do we get to enjoy that here in Colorado. Uh, you can walk out of this building, and everything around you, as you look to the west, or well, maybe east, but mostly to the west, you know, just screams about the majesty and the greatness and the genius of our God. But then there's still a need for something deeper, a deeper understanding. And we get that, of course, in what we call special revelation. That's the Bible. And in the Bible, it's a book. It's a big, thick book. Have you noticed that? 
Do you, any of you have a book called the Bible anymore? It's just everybody's got it on their smartphone. But it's a book of teachings. It's a book of stories from God creating and making and sustaining to then making human beings. And, and the book of the Bible is complex, as it should be, because God is quite complex. Even so are the human beings that God has made. We are quite complex. And so we need a very uh, many layered presentation and understanding of who God is. And so when you open the Bible, what you have is a book of narrative, a book of poetry, a book of lament, a book of celebration, a book of prophecy, an apocalyptic literature. There's all kinds of literature there to give us a rich and deep appreciation of who this God is and what he has done and how we are to interact with them. The Bible does that. You know, some parts of the Bible are harder to understand than others, to be sure. But from cover to cover, as you read, you're going to encounter, you know, their information about God that's going to make you scratch your head. You're not going to get it. What is, why did God do that? Why, why didn't he do something else? Well, guess what? It works that way even now. Do you ever scratch your head and go, what is God up to in my circumstances? Why is this happening to me? I don't understand God. You see, God does the same today as he was then. He's often up to things that we don't wholly, fully, completely comprehend or understand. But we need that rich and deep and robust uh, understanding and presentation of the truth about God. You know, Aaron, Moses' brother, tried to fashion an image that would portray Jehovah to the Israelites. It was an abomination precisely because it did not say enough. It was not the whole truth about God. And consequently, in a very short time, what began, if you could fathom this, what began as worship of Yahweh degenerated into a drunken orgy. Read all about it. Exodus 32. You see, and, and that is the problem with images, friends, images of God. No image is capable of conveying the totality of who he really is. Not even images that we're familiar with today. Uh, not even things like a crucifix. You know, the crucifix is just a little image. You all know what I'm talking about, a physical representation. Yes, of one of the greatest acts uh, of love ever demonstrated in all of human history. Uh, you, you all know what the crucifix looks like. It, it shows Jesus hanging on the cross and his head is down. He's crowned with thorns. He's suffering. He's in pain. He's dying for your sins and mine. That's what's being depicted there. Yes, it's a precious reality to any believer those events. So what could possibly be wrong with praying in front of a crucifix or using a crucifix in worship? Well, well, the problem is that while the crucifix does indeed depict Jesus' humiliation and suffering on the cross, it doesn't say anything about his divine strength and sovereignty on the cross. No one was taking his life from him. He was laying his life down. It doesn't say anything about his power on the cross, what he was actually accomplishing there, his conquering work. It doesn't say anything about the joy that Jesus had while dying on the cross, simply because he knew he was carrying out the plan of his heavenly father and his plan and the plan of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say anything about the certain victory that Jesus knew that he was securing in his death. 
in his paying for sin. The crucifix shows us a suffering savior, but it fails to show us the Jesus who was conquering sin and evil and death and the devil, nor does it show us Jesus rising from the dead in resurrection power. It shows us a dying Jesus, but it doesn't show us the living, conquering, ruling, reigning Jesus. So it's not so much what the crucifix does depict as it's a problem of what it doesn't depict. It's an accurate depiction of of one small piece of the truth about who God is, but it's not an adequate depiction. It only conveys a fraction. And now some of you are thinking, well, gosh, Dwayne, give me a break. It's just a little symbol, right? It can't convey everything. Bingo. That is the problem. You're probably getting tired of hearing me say it over and over, but that is precisely the problem. No symbol can. And so God says, don't make them. Don't dishonor me. Don't diminish me. And what is more, I think he would say, they won't help you. They will hurt you. I just wonder if any of you uh, are are thinking as I'm talking about these things, Dwayne, you know, you stand under a big giant cross. And I've often wondered, you know, if it fell, would it crush and kill you? Yes, it would. (laughs) Weighs about 800 pounds, you know, so yeah, it would. But what's going on with that? I mean, why, why is that in here, you know? Uh, it's true, we do display a cross here in the sanctuary, but notice um, the cross is empty. Uh, there's no image of Jesus on it. And I would also point out that we, we really never direct you, except for now, <laughs> we never direct you to really look at the cross or to pray to the cross or to worship God by using the cross What we maintain is that the cross is a representation of a very central, important doctrine of the Christian faith. It's one of the cornerstones, of course, of the Christian uh, gospel, but it's not the whole story, not by any means. And so we don't use the cross as an instrument of worship any more than we might, you know, uh, use an image or a picture or a sculpture of an empty tomb. Uh, or a manger scene, perhaps, or a lamb, or a shepherd's staff, or something of that nature. We don't attempt to prompt worship using any images at all, because which image would we use? Which one accurately portrays the totality of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me? And the answer is none do. There's a church uh, on the West Coast um, has a beautiful sculpture. Uh, it's a sculpture of Jesus as a shepherd and he's guarding the sheep. And um, I, I'm actually old enough to remember when this sculpture was uh, dedicated. It was a big news item, believe it or not. Um, that church no longer exists today, which is slightly ironic when you think about the sculpture and, you know, that church doesn't exist and so on and so forth. Jesus as a shepherd. I mean, it's an image we all like. It's an image that tells some truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. It's an image that, uh, whose meaning we certainly want to embrace. But, you know, why not outside your church instead of that image? Why not have a statue of Jesus with a whip in his hands, you know, overturning tables? And, you know, kind of a frustrated, angry look perhaps on his face. It would sure make visitors think twice before walking through the door. Be <laughs> like, oh my gosh, what are these people about? You know, but, but which image is the true Jesus? The shepherd image or the Jesus cleansing the temple, temple image? And you get the point. See, neither of them accurately portray 
the totality of what we're taught in Scripture. They don't give us enough information about all that Jesus is or all that Jesus has done. My personal opinion is that these kinds of religious artifacts come dangerously close to the images that are being prohibited here in the second commandment. Uh, Prohibited especially for the purpose of prompting or focusing our worship. Using images like these can easily reduce the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit in our minds from a comprehensive portrayal of them that we get in Scripture to something too small something maybe too focused. (laughs) So you see what we do here in church uh, when we come into this room to worship. We use liturgy, scripture reading, prayer, uh, calls to worship, singing of songs, uh, confessions of sin, declaration of forgiveness, the preaching of God's word, the sacraments, things like a benediction, all of these things we hope, especially uh, as we do them week after week after week, that we are consistently portraying God in all of his glory, in all of his many attributes, not focusing solely on our favorite attributes. In our worship, we meet the one true living God. How? How does that happen in this room? Well, not in symbol, but actually in spiritual substance. That's how. Let me say this. If you walk away from a worship service, not having met with God, not having heard the truth of his word being expressed and being taught, not having been reminded of who he truly is and who you truly are, not being reminded of what he has done, well, then in some very real sense, we've robbed you. We haven't done justice to who God is. You see, meeting God in worship is a spirit and truth kind of thing. In fact, let me say this. One of the greatest privileges of being a son or daughter of God, being adopted into the family of God, is that you have a real spiritual connection to him such that he listens to you when you talk and he can also talk to you in his word, through his spirit, through the preaching of the word, through your prayers. There is a real spiritual connection and dynamic and what a privilege that is uh, to all who are adopted into his family. And also one of the chief means by which God changes us and sanctifies us is in this spiritual connection. He, He makes us holy. He crafts us, transforms us, makes us more like his son, Jesus. But having, holding and focusing on religious symbols or images, or artifacts. It doesn't do any of that. So hopefully when we gather here to to reach up, to worship God, hopefully you are intentionally giving yourself to God and giving him your attention, giving him your praise, even giving him your problems, uh, giving him your hearts, your minds, giving him of your resources. That is what we do in worship. And God then responds in so many different ways. He inspires, he convicts, he encourages, he challenges us, he strengthens us. This all happens in worship. And this is why, friends, we do this corporately every week. Some of you don't know that. You think we only do it occasionally when you show up. But we do this every week because we so desperately need this. Now, when you leave here, we want you to be fully aware of the fact that God goes with you. He's not located here. Again, spirit and truth. He's a spirit. 
And so when you're functioning in the marketplace or at school or in your home, God is right there with you without relics, without symbols, without clergy. That's significant. You know, Jesus told a woman in Samaria uh, at a well uh, one time, he said, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And I think part of what Jesus was saying was that our worship of God should not involve pictures and relics and statues and images. It should involve only our spirits, which we are spiritual creatures made in the image of God who is spirit. Our spirits connecting with almighty God's spirit. That's worshiping in spirit, and, and, and that's worshiping in light of the truth of God's word. That's worship in spirit and truth. And that, that actually, uh, that kind of communion with God, that spiritual communion, it happens through what we call, it's got a really special name. It's really kind of mystical, and only clergy know about this. It's called the ordinary means of grace. Not a very sexy name. But that is how God meets us. He wants it to be ordinary, not extraordinary. Meeting him, we have the opportunity through the reading of scripture and the teaching of scripture. We have the opportunity through praying and having uh, communication with God. We have the opportunity through the sacraments and things like this. It's called the ordinary means of grace to actually worship and engage with God in spirit and in truth. It's through these things that we grow in grace. Now, of course, you know, we, we do this corporately like this. We also, there's, there are senses in which we do this as families and family worship, family reading of scripture, family prayer. We do this individually. All of these are important. All of these are necessary to worship in spirit and truth. You don't need candles. You don't need crosses. You don't need symbols. You don't need statues. That's the beauty of having a real spiritual relationship with our spiritual God. Now, let me, let me make one more observation here before closing. Not only does this commandment, I think, forbid physical images being used uh, in worship, but I think this commandment even cautions us about inaccurate mental images of God. And I've got to be careful here, but uh, let, let me kind of explain what I mean. I recall a conversation with a man I spoke with some years ago. He was living with a woman that he had decided to marry. Only thing was he had to get a divorce first. And in our conversation, he claimed to know Jesus and to be following Jesus. And when I asked him, you know, how this kind of squared with, with uh, his lifestyle, you know, that profession of faith with, with where he was and what he was doing, this is what he said to me. He said, well, my God is a forgiving God. And he said, I believe he wants me to be happy. I'm just trying to figure out how to get there, how, you know, how to be happy. And I told the gentleman, I said, well, you know, you, you've made a very convenient God for yourself. You need a God that you can manage and you need a God uh, who will give you what you want, whatever the desires of your heart are. And you need a God who will let you define uh, that course, that path, your right or your wrong, or else you would never be able to live with yourself and your sin. Problem is, you see, and I told him this, that is not the God of the Bible. That's the problem. That's a very inaccurate image of who God is. 
The God of the Bible, as we've been learning in recent weeks, is a holy God. That's not all he is, but that's a big part of who he is. And he's a God who makes promises to us. And then guess what? He keeps them. And he wants us to reflect that too in our relationships, especially in a marriage relationship. And so things like broken marriages and broken promises and broken covenants and hurting spouses and adultery, these things grieve God for a host of reasons. They don't honor him. They don't please him. And that man's problem And if we're being honest, our problem too is that instead of knowing God for who he reveals himself to be and then repenting of his sins in light of who God is and in light of who he is, you know, we, all of us very often change God and make him into someone who is okay with our sins. He's okay with me pursuing whatever I want to pursue, whether that's lust, greed, consumerism, pursuit of self-happiness, the list is long, right? We make him just a loving God or we make him just a God of happiness, not justice, not holiness, not righteousness, not hatred of sin. And when we do that, we do not have an accurate image of God at all. And that again, friends, is why we need the scriptures. Because they they portray God in a robust fashion. Um, we, We don't need an image of God that's a convenient image. We need an understanding of God that is based on Scripture. Many people live with just convenient images of God. And so I would just ask you, as we try to process the second commandment and we want to respond to it in obedience, just ask yourself, do you have any false mental images of God, you know, ideas about God that are convenient for you, but they're just not biblical. They're not really who God reveals himself to be. You know, I met people with false mental images of, of God. I, I remember a conversation one time, again, a long time ago with a person who really had a, an idea, a, an understanding of who God was, and God was just mean. God was just a judge. God was just watching him, he thought, and just waiting for him to make a mistake so that he could crush him. That was his concept of God. It was a false mental image of God. That's not the God of the Bible. Not even close. God is slow to anger. God is patient with us who are fallen and broken. God is tenderhearted toward the humble, toward those who repent of sin, toward those who follow him, toward those who are members of his household that he's adopted as his own children. Friends, the point is this, and it is a very convicting point for me, if I'm being honest. If, if we think of God in any imbalanced, unbiblical way, we're breaking, I think, the second commandment. See, God is not just a judge. God is not just a forgiver. God is not our big man in the sky or our old buddy. He's not a God who's going to just kind of wink at our sins. Ah, it's okay. (laughs) You know, quite the contrary. God sent his son Jesus to die because of our sins. That's how seriously he takes it. Our sins separate us from God. Our our sins destroy us and destroy our relationships. Our sins destroy everything and anything that's important. And God knows that and God did something about it in his son. And so because of that too, God is not to be treated casually, flippantly, 
as if he doesn't matter or for that matter, as if he doesn't care because he cares about the details of your life and mine. God is not a deal striking God. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. False mental image. That's not who God is. That is not how God operates. God is actually the giver of every good gift, the Bible tells us. So every good thing that you enjoy, every good thing that you have, whether you know it, believe it or not, doesn't matter. It's a gift to you from God. It's also a gift despite whether you deserve it, see? And I'll tell you, truly, and Scripture paints this picture from Genesis to Revelation, our God wants relationship with us. Part of that relationship is our offering worship to him. But the reason Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, all of those things were, were to create the possibility of us having relationship with him. I, uh, I, um, there, there's a beautiful section in that book I mentioned, The Ten Commandments by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, I, w- I wish I had thought of this and, and, and written it. Then I would be important, but... Um, <laughs> but it, it comes from him. And it's, um, it's really, I thought, uh, inspiring and insightful and encouraging. Uh, and this is about how Jesus came to fulfill the second commandment. Isn't that rich? Think about this. This is what he writes. It says, Jesus showed forth the Father to his disciples. To look upon Jesus was to look upon the face of him who could not be seen on Sinai. Remember, we looked at that. You couldn't see his face. They weren't supposed to go beyond the boundary that was set. Jesus did the seemingly impossible. He allowed humans to see the God who cannot be seen. Think of that. That's the mystery and majesty of the incarnation. We don't need pictures. We don't need statues. We don't need icons. We have the icon. Jesus is the image, the icon of the invisible God. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. And here's the thing, bottom line. We all need, desperately need, a clearer understanding of who Almighty God really is. And Jesus, his life, his work, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his glorification, gives us that understanding like nothing else. You see, we we don't need false reductionary images or inaccurate mental pictures of our God. We simply need to know Jesus better and better and better, and better, and better. That's what we need. And as we get to know him better, my goodness, we want to worship him more. We want to honor him with who we are and what we have. Our impact on others simply increases for good. It's just what Jesus does. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your revelation of yourself in Scripture. And we even see in these commandments a clearer understanding of who you are and your holiness. We see a clearer understanding of your love for us, of your love for our neighbor. Uh, Father, we would ask uh, that 
as we follow you as a church, as we follow you as individuals, God, we would gain a deeper and deeper, a more clear grasp and understanding of who you are and how you work. And God, we would want to surrender our false mental images of you to you and repent. Deliver us from those places in our lives where we have diminished you. We have reduced you to something you are not. God, speak to us through your word in ways that convict us and and show us how to repent of those sins. We ask in Jesus' name, for his sake, for his glory. Amen.